Hello and welcome to JOSPT Insights, the podcast that aims to help you translate quality research to quality practice. I'm Claire Ardern, the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Orthopaedic and Sports Physical Therapy. It's great to have you listening today. Today on JOSPT Insights, we're talking about opioid medications, what they should be used for, what they shouldn't be used for, and how we, all of us in the musculoskeletal rehabilitation community, can help patients make informed decisions about managing pain. Joining me to share her extensive work looking at prescribing and stopping prescribing medications is Dr. Stephanie Matheson from the Institute for Musculoskeletal Health at the University of Sydney in Australia. Stephanie's work is funded by the Australian government and is focused on reducing the opioid epidemic in Australia. Her research is nested within the Wiser Healthcare Collaboration, which is a leading multidisciplinary research collaboration working on ways to reduce overdiagnosis and overtreatment in healthcare. Welcome to JOSPT Insights, Stephanie. Hi, Claire. Stephanie, we hear a lot about an opioid epidemic and an opioid crisis. Do you think that this language helps or hinders the discussion about managing musculoskeletal pain? Yeah, it's an interesting term. I've certainly seen these words thrown in the media uh, many a times, and it's certainly a word that's come from uh, North America in terms of its origin, really emphasising and exaggerating um, a problem. Now, obviously, in America, it is a larger problem than what it is in Australia. Um, We have very similar rates in Australia in terms of increased prescribing. It is a problem. It's significant and it's affecting many people. Stephanie, what are opioid medications supposed to be prescribed for? What do the guidelines say? Yeah, so depending on what condition you have, opioids can be appropriate medicine to be used. So, for example, in cancer pain, in palliative care, they are a normal part of the treatment protocols and it's appropriate. Obviously, we use opioids in anaesthetics and in surgery and and they're needed there. In other conditions, they're no longer guideline recommendations. So an example of that would be in chronic non-cancer pain and in back pain. So a couple of years ago, the guidelines for both of those conditions have been updated and and they were done so because the evidence was indicating that there was more harms than the benefits for the use of these medicines. So there is sometimes where uh, these medicines may be needed in some populations, but as a general thing, um, they're not recommended. What has your work shown about opioid prescription or medication prescribing for low back pain? Some of my work has been looking into how much prescribing and how much use of opioids there have been. So, for example, we've done some systematic reviews looking at observational studies and trying to understand the extent of how much opioids are being prescribed for both chronic pain conditions and including chronic low back pain and whether that's the same as how much opioids are being used or taken by people with chronic pain and back pain because obviously how much medicine Uh, no matter what it is, is dispensed or prescribed, it doesn't actually mean that those people are taking it. So if I think about um, how much uh, our prevalence review on how much opioids were being prescribed, this was uh, 30% of people who had chronic pain 
but actually it was much higher in people who had back pain. It was at 47%. But when we looked at the prevalence of how much opioids were taken or being used, it was much less. It was only 26% in those who had chronic pain and 29% and had chronic low back pain. So there is a difference there. But at the end of the day, a quarter or just under a third of people with these conditions are taking opioids. And hopefully that changes over time in that now that guidelines have changed and people and clinicians and systems are more aware of the harms of opioids and that they're no longer part of guidelines. We'd like to see that the rates of their the use and prescription decrease over time. And what's the evidence for these sorts of strong medicines in managing musculoskeletal pain? What are the harms and what are the benefits? Well, there's lots of uh, efficacy reviews done, so like a Cochrane review looking at uh, how much benefit they give against placebo and looking at a, a pooled rate. This might be, say, one point out of 10 on a, on a pain scale. You might find that NSAIDs in, say, like osteoarthritis conditions might be a little bit higher, might be two or three out of 10. When we think about the harms, well, the amount that, uh, so the benefit that opioids have of only being one out of 10, there's obviously more harms associated with those medicines compared to other classes. So this is part of the reason why they're being uh, discouraged. And is it just an opioid problem here or are there other types of strong medications that you see that are being used in managing musculoskeletal pain? Yeah, definitely in Australia, we've we've certainly got a lot of opioids being prescribed. Like when we look at, say, PBS data, so of all opioids being dispensed in it to Australians, it's uh, in 2016, 15 million prescriptions. And a lot of them were of strong medicine. So 60% of those were of strong opioids. And an example of a strong opioid would be something like oxycodone. Turns out to be the most prescribed strong opioid. And that was um, at about 37% of all of those. So it can be concerning because they are strong medicines. I want to come back to this idea that there's a lot more prescriptions than there are people taking the medications because that's that's pretty interesting, I think. Have you got some ideas about what might be driving that, Stephanie? Yeah, I think there's a couple of things. There's obviously the when people get a prescription, they may or may not believe that that's what they want to take, whether they've come from, say, a, a GP or a physician consultation and decide that that's not what they want to do in terms of their management. There's obviously just people just not feeling it because they don't have time or maybe their pain resolves and so the script is no longer uh, needed. The other difference is that obviously with the reviews, there's a little bit of reporting bias because these studies uh, come from many countries in the world, but there's no standardised way of capturing this information. So we found that in both of the reviews, most studies were from the United States of America, two-thirds of studies, half to two-thirds of studies, and they are of different types of observational studies. So they can be ones of national reporting databases or they can be of individual clinics. So when we look at that quality of data compared to studies that were reporting opioid use, 
they were more likely to be patients coming from a clinic setting and being only one clinic and certainly not being of national databases. So it's it's one way a little bit difficult to make a direct comparison. But in just general view, it would seem plausible that there would be less um, number of people reporting the use because we know that the number of prescriptions dispensed, and no matter for what medication it is, it doesn't translate to 100% of that medicine being used. Now, Stephanie, some of your work has also looked at barriers to opioid prescription or de-prescription, I think you've called it. So some of the barriers to people stopping prescribing opioids or doctors stopping prescribing opioids. Can you walk us through some of the key findings of some of your research? Yeah, in terms of de-prescribing, there's two studies that come to mind that I can share. One has been of qualitative interviews, looking directly at what barriers that are faced in primary care in terms of opioid de-prescribing um, in patients with chronic pain and patients, or rather physicians, GPs who manage patients with chronic pain. Some of the, the key findings there have been looking at um, things that we we find is quite obvious. We know that de-prescribing is cumbersome and it is time-consuming and there is a bit of burden on the GP um, in terms of, of doing that and the time taken to do that. But one interesting thing was that we found communication was part of the barriers that really stopped de-prescribing and that some patients felt that the opioids were to take their pain away. And so they never realised up front or the beginning when they were initially prescribed the opioids that 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 was never going to happen. So there was a little bit of an unrealistic component in terms of the the use of the medicine and what to expect. Um, And so de-prescribing was just another barrier. And one of the other reviews that we've done, we've looked at interventions that were really designed to de-prescribe opioids in those that have come from randomised trials. And what came from that was that we've got uh, 12 studies were included in that review, but really they were all from various different types of interventions. Some were really focused on the patient in terms of how to de-prescribe in a, say, a tapering protocol or using things like cognitive behavioural therapy or mindfulness. And then some interventions were looking or targeting clinicians in terms of reducing the number of prescriptions that were going out. A number of trials are actually upcoming and registered. So we would like to think in a couple of years there would be a space to include these new trials into our review and update them. I know there's a, a big deprescribing trial in the UK called iWatch that results hopefully are out uh, next year because our review found that really no one or no one intervention was of more benefit than the other. So really a watch this space. There's a lot more work being done and hopefully a lot more that's going to help guide our understanding in the not-too-distant future. Yeah, absolutely. And we hope there's some results where we can really guide clinicians finding a way that this this may work in this setting or this population than, than something else to really just give some hope and planning in terms of deprescribing. 
Now, Stephanie, you've got a really special um, set of circumstances here because you wear a clinician hat, you've got clinical training, and you've also got the researcher training and doing a lot of research work in this area. I'd like to spend a bit of time talking about what the implications are for musculoskeletal rehabilitation clinicians, because we are not the folks who are doing the initial prescribing of these medications. Why do you feel that it's important that we have this discussion and that clinicians working in musculoskeletal rehabilitation understand the issues about these medicines and about their rates of prescription? In the reality, patients that come through, whether it's having uh, back pain or any other musculoskeletal pain, they are often on a medicine, whether that medicine is related to a comorbidity or whether it is for analgesic properties of the condition that they're coming to see you with. So in the, the day, we have patients all the time that are on medicines. Sometimes they're opioids and sometimes they're not. So understanding the benefits these medicines can have, the harms that they can place and the space where that they should be prescribed or not can really give better care to your patients or really identify a time where something may need to go under a review. And a really simple classic case would be someone with recurring headaches who have been taking a codeine-based medicine and just not realising that codeine is an opioid and realising that some of the effects can be like withdrawal uh, symptoms when you stop taking a medicine or not having to take it for one day and then you realise that you've got a headache. But essentially you've got an overuse um, medicine headache. Sounds like communication is a really big issue here. What are your tips for clinicians speaking with other clinicians and perhaps clinicians speaking with patients about these sorts of medicines? Like I think with all types of communication, first of it comes to being transparent and having the discussion. So I think if people understand that you come from a point of view to help to find more information or to provide benefit and have the discussion, it usually can be really effective and positive. Going in an aggressive way just really, really helps. So looking at our qualitative studies, communication came up and patients were not aware of the benefits that that may or may not have from the medicines and the harms. And, And looking at some of our consumers that provided feedback on our studies, they wish that they'd never been put on the medicine in the first place because they didn't realise how hard it was to come off. And so some of the communication and the discussion is the first time these medicines are being prescribed is that acknowledgement that, you know, it's not a long-term thing. They only provide so much benefit and that because they're not long-term that you can't stay on it forever and, and they can, it can be difficult coming off. So that would probably be the key thing and, and just keeping it transparent and open. And so in a situation where someone uh, needs to uh, reduce their opioid dose and cease that medicine, that there's an understanding between clinicians that pain may or may not increase. It doesn't always increase. Um, only about a third of patients will have increased pain coming off opioids. But that's often a fear of, of patients because they remember what it was like originally and they don't want to go back to that and having strategies to help manage pain or any other factors that exaggerate their pain 
really becomes a positive mindset in terms of their management and can be done over different types of clinicians. Everyone can work together, but there probably needs to be some sort of overarching clinician that really uh, has a, a management over the, the case. Now let's finish by talking a little bit about this concept of overdiagnosis, overtreatment, overuse, and you've been involved in some high-profile conferences in the last few years looking at this, I would venture as far as to say global movement about overuse of healthcare. Where do you see your work fitting into the very broad topic of overuse in healthcare, Stephanie? Yeah, so my work is certainly following this theme and it really focuses on getting patients the best care. So part of that is reducing inappropriate medicine use because really I I want patients to get the best care for them. Patients may need to try alternatives. It may be that our research needs to look at other analgesic ways, whether it's combining medicines, whether it is trying to find a more strategic way of, of helping patients. But certainly the overuse of medicines is not limited to just opioids. It happens in, in other medicines. It happens in other treatments in, in different aspects of the healthcare. So the overall premise is to make things, I guess, more efficient and better in a way that We're not wasting money in providing services that don't provide benefit, but that also means that patients get the best care, whatever they need. I think that's something that we can all get behind. Dr. Stephanie Matheson, thank you so much for joining us on JOSPT Insights. Thanks, Claire. Thanks for listening to this episode of JOSPT Insights. For more discussion of the issues in musculoskeletal rehabilitation that are relevant to your practice, subscribe to JOSPT Insights on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google, or your favourite podcast app. If you like JOSPT Insights, help others find us. Tell your friends and colleagues and rate and review us. To keep up to date with all the latest JOSPT content, be sure to follow us on Twitter, we're at JOSPT, and Facebook, where JOSPT official. Talk with you next time.